2: shop now in store or online Kroger fresh for everyone
0: brute force if it doesn't work you're just not using enough you're listening to software radio special operations military news and straight talk with the guys in the community
4: welcome to back to software radio folks i'm your host today steve balustri joining me we have a very special guest mark goldberg uh And if you don't uh, know who Mark is, he wrote a tremendous book, which we've uh, reviewed and highly recommend. It's called Beyond the Green Line. And uh, Mark grew up in in London, England. Uh, He's of Jewish descent. So when he was 18 years old, he he left England, moved to Israel, a place he had never been, joined the uh, Israeli paratroopers, and uh, took part in the... Second, Intifada, and we're going to get into all that, but before we do, we want to welcome Mark to the podcast, and uh, we're very grateful that he could make the time for us today. So Mark, welcome to Software Radio. We're very happy to have you as our guest.
5: Hi, Steve. Uh, really happy to be here. Thanks very much for having me. It's great,
4: yeah, and uh, again, the, the, your book was fascinating because uh, I, I have friends uh, who have been to London. I have uh, friends of friends who are of Jewish descent in London were telling me a lot of the same stories that you had uh, wrote about in your book, and I, I found it hard to believe, Not well, not hard to believe, but it, it's, it is still kind of difficult to fathom that we still have the anti-Semitism that you would think that would have been eradicated from Europe after the Second World War, but... You know, let's get into all this because I will, you know, our listeners want to hear your story and tell us about growing up in London.
5: Well, um, before I start, actually I should say that I had been to Israel before uh before oh, you did. The, okay. Yeah, I had been I had been there for a, a bit. Um I've been there a few times. Um but yeah, but I was in London. Basically I grew up in London and London is um or well, the UK. I kind of felt uh growing up Jewish that the attitude was kind of like don't don't discuss like your difference you know don't don't be very different from everyone else keep it to yourself you know um uh yeah and and kind of just don't don't kind of if you have something about you that's kind of different from the prevailing culture mm-hmm. you know it's best not to express it it's kind of the way i grew up um yeah and i grew up and as i grew up more i kind of identified more with my identity as a Jew and kind of resented more and more the feeling that I, I wasn't really free to kind of happily express that side of kind of my identity in the UK. And um, yeah, ended up going to Israel and joined, joined the army.
4: And, and, and now that, that had to have been a huge, huge culture change for <laughs> for you. I mean, you're going from London, You're going to Israel, and as you put it out in your book, you didn't speak very good Hebrew at the time.
5: No, I didn't speak anything. Uh, But it's funny. The funny thing about culture, actually, when I first joined the army, uh, my perception in my mind of army was very British, kind of centric perception of what an army is supposed to be. You have a drill sergeant who's screaming at you all the time. You have to stand to attention. You have to polish your boots. You have to iron your clothes, all of that kind of stuff. And the Israeli army was nothing like that at all. <laughs> and it much more was like a youth. It was. It, it reminded me of the Jewish youth movement that I had gone to when I was a kid. Actually, <laughs> so in terms of culture, there were some similarities there. Some things that I weren't expecting. I well, wasn't expecting about it. Like they were very. It was much more. Like, for example, your first two weeks in the IDF uh, uh, are more like youth, youth club of some kind. It's more like, well, we've got a bunch of 18-year-olds. We've just conscripted them in. We're going to ease them in very gently. We're going to have a very relaxed kind of regime as they get used to wearing a uniform and they get used to kind of being in the army. They don't even issue you with a weapon. Um, yeah, so the, the, it, was actually, it was actually easier than I thought once I was in. It, it, was, it was quite comfortable.
4: Yeah, I found that part of the book fascinating because, you know, we think of the IDF, you know, we've seen their their history in battle since the Israel became a nation, you know, back in the late 40s. And, you know, I had the same impression that you were that this would be, you know, iron discipline, you know, sergeant screaming in, in your face. and when I was reading your book, that's what I was expecting to be reading. And, uh, you know, that's something that was, it was a kind of an eye opener because, uh, you know, as you put the first couple of weeks, they kind of ease that in to, you know, where everyone gets, I guess their own comfort level of being a, a soldier in, you know, now, now you're kind of, you know, easing into that military lifestyle.
5: Yeah. Um, yeah. It was very much, well, it has. You have to remember that, actually, in order to even start training with the unit that I was in, you have to go through a couple of selections to get there. So the people mm-hmm. who were there were already kind of proved to a certain extent that they wanted to be there. Um, and that's kind of the mindset. You always kind of felt like, actually, if I don't want to do this anymore, if this is too hard, I can just say it's too hard. I don't want to do this anymore. And they will just get rid of me. You know, I'll just be sent someplace else. In the military. And that actually is kind of the philosophy that they work to is like if you're a if you're not up to it, like if we don't think you're good enough, but also if you won't do this anymore, then then you just have to go, you know, Um, it wasn't really about because there's the encouragement element of a drill sergeant as well. You know, they're making you do things. Uh, They're making you run. They're making you work harder. Whereas the Israelis are much more like, yeah, if you don't want to do this, then uh, bye. (laughs)
4: Yeah, I know. And uh, it's funny because uh, that part of it, after I became, uh, I I was in the the Army Special Forces, the Green Berets, and our selection course is exactly like that. I I was an instructor at our selection course. And, you know, uh, it was pointed out to all of our cadre members we won't discourage the candidates. We won't encourage candidates. We just tell them what they need to do and it's up to them how hard or how well or not so well they perform. And then, you know, our, our, I guess function is strictly to assess them and whether or not they'll be selected as part of the unit. And that part of it, uh, I, I definitely could, you know, I guess uh relate to
5: yeah and I've read about that in some other books and books about the SAS and their kind of mentality as well um so yeah it was interesting it was definitely a shock that it was going to be like that I expected yeah like I said I expected to be screamed at from the instant <laughs> yeah. that the bar stopped you know I had this I can't remember what movie it is actually uh I, if it was Full Metal Jacket you know, where the, the Marines, they, they, they it stops in the Marine base and then that's it. They're like screaming at you, get off the bus, do this, do that. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's exactly what I was expecting to happen to me when the bus arrived in the first base. And instead, the guy just sort of goes, all oh, right, guys, really lethargically, you know, get off the bus, go on, just get off the bus and just wait by the bus. I was <laughs> like, oh, yeah, all right, yeah, I, guess, I guess I'll do that then, all right. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah, I, uh, that's not the way, uh, you know, most of us uh, who were in the American military were introduced to the military. And when <laughs> I remember when my bus got to uh, our basic training base, before the bus even stopped, the drill sergeant was jumping on and he was literally screaming in everyone's face and guys who were too slow. He was helping them off the bus, if you get what I mean. Yeah. <laughs>
5: yeah, yeah. And that's exactly the image i had and that was why i was so surprised
4: yeah but, but
5: uh, I this is very jewish actually yeah
4: so um yeah so you know um you, you went through the selection course for the idf paratroopers and yeah. what can you tell us about that the
5: selection course for idf paratroopers was i had trained very hard for that Um, I did two. There was one for the, they have one, they call them a gibbush. And and one was just for the paratroopers. And then once you're in, then you do another one, which is uh, longer and more difficult. The one for the paratroopers, again, compared to the Western, uh, the, the US and British kind of selection procedure, it was incredibly easy. It was like nothing. It was about five hours long. Started at about four in the morning when it's still cool um and you know involve the usual kind of physical exertion and mm-hmm. they really want to kind of put you through some kind of motivational test to go through that they can see that the people who who are going to be a waste of time will will quit uh during it but you know what it wasn't it wasn't that hard i was actually disappointed because i'd worked really hard for it and it, and it, yeah it it wasn't as difficult as i thought it, as i thought it would be um yeah. And I think that kind of reflects, um, two things. I think it reflects the fact that, um, there's the, the difficult stuff is ahead of you anyway, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, they know that in paratrooper training they'll push you through tough stuff. Uh, anyway, so they don't kind of need you to be starting at such a high standard because you will get fit, uh, like during the training. So, uh, it was more of a motivational test. Uh, and the other thing is, you know what? The IDF has a need for manpower in these units. You know, mm-hmm. that, was, that was just my personal opinion. I think that they they don't want it to be that hard. They want it to be too hard because they need people in them.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's the, the balancing uh, the balancing act that a lot of, especially special operations, you know, units in in all services in all countries, that they kind of have to balance that today because. You know, on one hand, they, they want to keep the standards high, and they want the very best people. But uh, on the other hand, you know, they, they need to fill the ranks. So it's kind of I, – I know if if we had a selection course, and this is just from my perspective, that too many people failed, you know, the uh, – or, or, you know, decided to opt out. Um, our chain of command up at the higher headquarters used to get very upset with the instructors thinking that we were changing the standards that being higher when in fact uh, sometimes you know certain classes you might have a group of guys that absolutely excel and they they come together as a as a group and when people do that they tend to do much better and yeah. we've had other classes where no uh, they they kind of opted out in every man for himself and when that happens you know it's uh collectively they don't do as well
5: yeah and it's also a terrible experience for the people who are in it actually like my team really came together Mm -hmm. um and it was beautiful it was actually just beautiful like when you all know that you can kind of it's you against them if you like you know it's you sorry the team together like against the instructors and you're all going to do it and you're going to be in it with one another but it must be terrible when it's a fragmented group of, of soldiers who just don't even like each other and, you know, can't rely on each other to com- complete the tasks and, and all that kind of thing.
4: Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
5: Oh, well, I was just going to say my second, the selection that I, that I uh, went through to get to the, to my kind of final unit that I arrived at the Orev mm-hmm. unit was, was tough. I was several days long. Um, And that, you know, uh, even though actually they have to I don't know how it is in the US, but they had certain rules that they had to adhere to in terms of the number of hours of sleep that each soldier would get, that we would all get fed, that we would you know, that you would have to adhere to certain certain things, Uh, which again was a surprise for me, actually, because I expected it to be really brutal, like really brutal. Um, But it wasn't like that. It was it was quite professionally run. and they did kind of mental as well as physical challenges that you had to pass. Um, there was a lot of running, running with stretchers. Uh, stretcher opened a lot of weight put on the stretcher. And then four of you kind of would be under it and you'd just be going, or you'd be running with a sandbag on your shoulder and you just keep going and going and you wouldn't know. They took our watches from us. So you never know when it's going to finish. You can't really tell <laughs> what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> um and then the other the really intimidating thing actually is they're like okay it's time to eat and they throw a ration pack uh to the crew if there were like 10 of us in each uh part of the selection then they just throw one in the middle of the 10 of you and then and then they take notes on how you organize eating and how you organize the food with one ration pack between all of you you know and they're like looking for people okay who who's making other people food who's opening the tins for other people to eat who's who and who's just grabbing food and keeping it to themselves, you know, and grading you accordingly. Very interesting take on it, actually.
4: Absolutely. And that that's, you know, that's a hallmark of I think all good special operations units and that's, you know, they want to see who the team players are. And if you're worried about, okay, we're going to make sure that everyone's taken care of and that's what they, they're looking for, for leaders, you know, that's, you know, I, I remember reading that part of the book and it definitely struck a chord because that's the kind of things that we assess you know as instructors you know you're looking for who's the team players who who are the guys and naturally there's going to be some guys that might not be leaders per se but you know they're going to be good team members and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that either that not everyone's going to be a leader and not everyone can be a good one but uh, I you know I found that part of it very interesting because again, I mean, that's, you know, when you're going through something like that, we used to tell our candidates the same thing. You're always being assessed. Just remember that everything you do. And it might seem so ridiculous, but you're being assessed because we assess everything. And that part of it where you guys were eating, I thought was, you know, that that's very interesting, and see they watch how how the guys do it, and uh, yeah, you know. Yeah. So oh, let's you know, as part of your training, obviously, you have to jump out of an airplane. What was that like for you? I know <laughs> everyone has different, you know, remembrances of that. Yeah. Um, oh, I, yeah.
5: I wrote in the book actually about one yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> You know what, first of all, let me say generally that I was petrified of jumping out of an airplane first time. And I was petrified of jumping out of an airplane every time. Not just the first time, but, um, you know, the the things that I saw that first time were amazing. Like, you're in the the Hercules, the doors are open and everything's ready and everyone's jumping out. And then suddenly, some guy runs from the door backwards to the back of the plane, just run, he's hooked up for the static line. runs past me and then four of the jump masters ju- ju- they literally jumped on him, dragged him to the door and <laughs> threw him out. Right? <laughs> you know, they just threw him straight out the door. Like, like, like you know, there's the action that if one is scared everyone will get scared. So they're like, forget this. <laughs> um,
2: yeah.
4: Yeah, uh, it's, yeah, because everyone's jump stories are different but they're all great. And I love that part when, uh, you know, when you talked about in your book and and to be perfectly honest, I've been afraid of heights all my life. And then, of course, when I joined special forces, what did they make me do? They put me on a mountain team. So I was climbing mountains and, you know, hanging off cliffs, (laughs) 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 you know, but I'm still to this day, my wife will laugh at me because I don't like getting on a ladder on the side of the house. And she's like, for somebody who jumped out of airplanes hundreds of times, and you don't like getting on a ladder, and I was like, I still don't like heights. I've climbed mountains, I've jumped out of aircraft, but I still don't like heights. But honestly, jumping, I guess because it was so high, that didn't bother me. I used to actually like hanging out of the uh, aircraft as a jump master. But, uh, you know ladders are still a no-go around here <laughs> yeah. brilliant,
5: brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, i've really i've got to tell the story about jump but like when i my i think it was my second jump you know i don't know do you do it in the u.s where they graduate up like while you're you're qualifying as a parachutist they they graduate up what you're jumping with on you like you have more equipment yes um, okay cool so the israelis do it that way as well like the first time you jump you don't have anything um the next time you jump you have like a bag in between your legs um that's there and the third time I think it's a night jump and then they whatever they just graduate up so this was the second time and I had the bag in between my legs and I, I jumped out there aer- airplane and um you know you, you count one two three and then you you know you look up and you make sure the canopy is deployed so I count one two three and basically my eyes are closed so I count one two three I open my eyes <laughs> And the canopy's open and I know that the canopy's open because I'm looking straight at it because the parachute cord has opened around my leg and, and it is holding me upside down. <laughs> I'm Like upside down with the bag in between my leg, you know, in my balls, frankly, like just <laughs> pushing down there. And I'm like looking up, I'm like, I have no idea what to do now. Like what the what the hell am I supposed to do in this situation? So, obviously, I just start screaming at the parachute, let me go, let me go. And that didn't work. <laughs> so, I uh, eventually, I just, I, I'm like, okay, where is my leg? Like, where, where <laughs> what's the of that? I like, reach up and I have to like grab the cord and kind of get my leg out. And then you get your leg out and you're like still hundreds of feet above the ground. So, then I fell, I sort of fell, you know, the right way up, which was bad enough. And I was all tangled, you know, it had twisted. But actually, what was cool was that the training did totally kick in. And, you know, they they teach you above your head, you hold the two cords and you pull them apart and then you kick, like, with your leg around Mm -hmm. um, until you untwisted uh, the cord. So I just did that instinctively. And then I pulled the, um, the lever to release the bag, like, two meters or whatever below me. And my, you know, I knew I was supposed to do that. But before I could do it, this voice in my head goes, Wait, how do you know that this is not the releaser for the harness? How do you know you're going to pull this thing and you just going to slip out the whole parachute and you're done? Like, how do you know that? Like, I know I know that. I know it's not true. I know what this is. But you yes, had that little argument. And I was like, yeah, if I land like this, I'm in big trouble. So I just pulled the lever and, yeah, the bag deployed. It was all fine. <laughs> but, you know, another day in the life.
4: Oh, yeah. And... Uh, um... Uh, One of the stories I wrote for soft rep is uh, we were on a deployment once to Paraguay and we were training uh, alongside the Paraguayan uh, airborne brigade. And the drop zone ends at the edge of the base. And then you actually, the racetrack for the C-130 after he, you know, turns on the red light and he's making another, you go actually over the capital city of Asuncion. So it's like, you know you can't let anyone go out after the red light comes on because they'll be over big tall buildings yeah <laughs> So i had this one paraguayan kid he gets to the door he starts to jump out and then halfway out the door he decides no i'm not doing this so he's half in he's half out and he's hanging with his right leg and his right arm are hanging out of the aircraft the c-130 hercules yeah. One side is holding on with a death grip inside the aircraft. And now the other jumpers are trying to get by him and jump over him. So I'm grabbing them, pushing them back. No, 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 go back. Go back. <laughs> so I'm trying to take this kid and I'm like, I'm now by this time we're over the city. So there's big, tall buildings and everything. And it's like, this is not oh, the God. area to, to go out in a parachute. So I'm, I'm trying to pull him back in and I'm telling him, look down. I'm not putting you out over these buildings. Yeah. I'm not going to throw you out. And he refused to move. And then the Air Force guys were petrified because they were like, "Hey, we can't, you know, we can't let him hang like this." Yeah. So I was like, oh. "So the the uh, the Colomb- uh, the Paraguayan general, I should say, he was sitting right there. He was filming everything with his camera." <laughs> so I'm like, "Well." there's only one way to get this guy in. So I grabbed the top of his helmet and I pulled it back as far as I could. And I punched him as hard as I could right in the jaw. <laughs> and it kind of stunned him for a second where it was like, "Oh!" and he reached for his jaw and then I picked him up and I threw him in the seat and then I strapped him back in. Oh. And, uh, and the general was laughing so hard and he was like, I didn't know what you were going to do to that kid. He goes, I thought you were going to throw him out. I was like, no, we can't. You know, but I had to get him in. It's a safety thing. I can't let him hang like that. And he's
5: ruined the whole jump for everyone else.
4: Oh, yeah. So then, you know, we got him back to the front of the aircraft. We we made another pass. And then all the rest of the guys went out without exception. And then by the time all the guys got on the ground, they were telling the airborne brigade commander what happened <laughs> And he came up to me, and he, he was holding his hands in front of his face. He goes, "Hey, whatever you do, don't punch me, okay?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> and
4: I apologized to him. I was like, "I didn't want to touch any of your soldiers," but it got to the point where, you know, if if he ended up falling out, you know, he he probably yeah. would have got killed. So, yeah, yeah. And he yeah. was like, "No, no, no, you did the absolute right thing." He's like, "Just don't punch me, all right?" Was like, okay. <laughs> But enough of my airborne story. So, uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, I I think one of the crowning moments for everybody and I, uh, you know, again, uh, your book touched on something that, you know, that uh, hit on, you know, that I remembered, your parents came to your graduation to see you get your beret and your silver, you know, your wings and yeah, Yeah. what was was all that like?
5: that was beautiful that was beautiful and the army was so good to them as well actually they made a big deal out of it they were very happy for them to be there and um yeah i mean uh, actually what i didn't write in the book because it just didn't quite work is that you have like two graduations i so when after six months you become a paratrooper and you get the red bearer you have to do a 90 kilometer march um up to jerusalem Up to a place called Ammunition Hill, which is a a big uh, battleground that the paratroopers fought in in 1967 during the Six Day War, and that's where you receive your beret, your red beret, and your um, yeah, and you're officially brought into the paratroop family, if you like. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a huge deal. My parents were there for that, and it was just it was um, it was amazing. And to receive the commander's beret uh was also was just a a, a fantastic moment actually um uh and and an award for like they were like look you were really uh hardcore on the 90k march so you've you're deserving of this watch that we also give just what just to one of the recruits uh when they pass out i just it, it was just you know you know i i don't have to tell you i mean you know right there was just the
4: crowning moment
5: isn't it it's just beautiful
4: yes and uh yeah um That to me was another, I mean, you know, your commander gave you his beret rather than, you know, a brand new one. And that, that's a huge sign of respect. And then to get the watch in that 90 K what, what was that March like? Yeah.
5: So, (laughs) so I've mixed feelings about it. It's very hard. Um, It's, it's nonstop. And you do it like in, um, in company level or maybe higher, maybe battalion level. So there's a lot of you doing it at the same time, which slows you down, which actually makes it harder because you don't, you know, sleep on the way or or you don't really have any rest stops along the way, but you can't go as fast as maybe you'd like to, to just get it done with, because you're within this larger, Mm -hmm. this larger kind of, um, environment It took us 23 hours. Uh, to do the 90k which was considered uh, like medium um, and actually I had look it's it's the easiest thing that you do in many ways because you know it's the end like you know that at the end of this my red beret is waiting for me right mm-hmm. this is all I have to do um, and with all the stuff that you've gone through beforehand you know that you're able to do it as well like there's no real feeling oh, I'm. I, I I hope I can do this there's no way that I was going to fail kind of at this, at this moment. Um, And yeah, I just, I just, uh, I can't even, I'm struggling to remember it actually, you know, like uh, I carried the radio, which I was like the least, the least likely person to carry the radio because I couldn't even speak the language anyway. So it's like babbling (laughs) in my ear by that time, to be fair, by that time I was pretty good, but I was still like, you know, the British guy, Uh, but I was carrying the radio for, yeah, for like at least half of it. And it was fine. You know, um, and there's a, I don't know if this happened to you. There's like, I, there's a strange psychological thing that happened to me and I saw it happen to everyone on my team is that the first time you carry a relatively heavy piece of equipment on one of these long marches, it basically kills you. It just, it's just destroys you. Destroyed my back. First time it was just the stretcher and it was for a 45 kilometer march. And it just, yeah, it was very, very tough. I didn't give it up, though, and I did it the whole time. But after that moment, which almost but didn't break me, I could carry basically anything without any problems at all. Uh, and on the 90K, when I picked up the radio, I just had no issues with that and all my other equipment. It was, it was It's a really interesting thing, actually. Um, but yeah, so, you know, and the closer you get to Jerusalem, until then you can actually see it, and then you're in it, and you're running on the Jerusalem streets and people who are, you know, civilians are driving past and they're all beeping their horns uh, <laughs> to, like to salute you and everyone's applauding and it's amazing. And you just, you know, then you start running and they open the stretches and then you run, you just run um, all the way to the end. And it's beautiful, you know, <laughs> they're waiting there with food and and all kinds of things for you. And they just let you know, yeah, congratulations, you're in now, you've done it.
4: That that's that's awesome. I I, I had read somewhere that uh, they they used to do. I don't know if they still do it at times. That I heard that the uh, Israeli paratroopers used to take. Uh, I I don't know if it was an oath of enlistment or just like a graduation ceremony type thing where they used to do it at night at, at Masada. Did they? Is that still a a, a thing with them? They used to do it. It's not a thing anymore. Okay. You have every every um
5: combat soldier in the IDF swears an oath um to protect the country, basically. Uh, and the, the paratroopers and maybe a couple of other units used to do it at Masada, but they moved it now to the um the the Western Wall and the temple. Uh, okay. Um, and that's where I did my swearing-in ceremony as well.
4: At the Western Wall. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, such an awesome place. And for somebody yeah. who's not a Jewish, I mean, I, I've been to Israel many times and uh, I still get it's when, when I go there and, and to our listeners who haven't been, it's, it's, it's an amazing place and it, it, it gives you goosebumps when you go there and you watch how the people you know, they go up to the wall and say their, you know, uh, I guess it's a prayer or whatever they, that they do there. It's it's such a it's a powerful place, and it's been there, what over two thousand years, right?
5: Yeah, yeah, and it's a yeah, it's a place that connects the modern and the ancient. Yep, you know, it's like where it all began, really.
2: mo play
4: Yeah, I I kind of felt like um I don't know like I was intruding because I'm not Jewish but I, I watching it unfold there when you know the people I was with and we we were watching people do that it's it's a very I I I thought it was along with certain other parts of Jerusalem especially in the old parts it, it's such a powerful place and as you said it connects the old and the new and um it's part of you know your heritage there and uh i think that that's a, a neat place for the, the paratroopers to take their oath of enlistment
5: yeah yeah it is pretty it is pretty good
4: it's a very powerful place
5: yeah very special what, place.
4: what were your parents like when they saw you know uh did they notice a big change in you at your graduation
5: um yeah i think so i mean i think that it's very like in many ways in, in many kind of instances, I kind of looked at them, and I, and I felt like, what have I, you know, I dragged this middle class Jewish couple from London, you know, <laughs> to, to the some army barracks or you know, to, to to a battlefield in 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 a place they've never, you know, in Jerusalem, but in, in a part of Jerusalem they would never have otherwise gone to, uh, <laughs> to be surrounded by these other like Israeli parents who. Who all know exactly what they're doing and what's happening, um, but it was great. You know, they were great about it. They were so proud. It was amazing. They were really proud of me, um, and I was really proud to have been there. So yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a very big deal. Um, oh yeah, I
4: remember uh, when I graduated special forces training. My parents came down for that as well, and it was a big thing. Especially my dad, who you know served in World War II, which uh, we spoke of offline there before we started. Then you know um to you know to, for them to see that it was it was pretty neat and uh, yeah so, so then yeah. you know you you get to your your uh, your unit you're in the is it a battalion or rev no it's
5: um you know what it, it's theoretically it's a company but it's actually because okay. it's um it's a little bit smaller than a company size okay um, and they have like a reconnaissance battalion and the battalion is like the Orev which is anti-tank and then engi- an engineering element and then a, a reconnaissance element as well um and then altogether it's like the reconnaissance battalion
4: okay so yeah the, and the you were OREV. in the uh, reconnaissance uh, element right
5: yeah no i was in the Orev element which is like um anti-tank
4: anti-tank okay but you know you you took part in the uh, the second intifada Yes, I did, and uh, that part of your book was fascinating. Again, you know, because it wasn't what you expected to be doing, no. But uh, uh, there was a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, incidents that happened, and uh, I mentioned a couple of them in the review of the book, and uh, one of them just struck me as so insane. But you see crazy stuff like this all the time, and. Uh, there was a rock throwing incident where Palestinian youths had climbed onto a roof on an apartment building, and they could th- they were throwing everything they, they could get their hands on, and they ended up throwing <laughs> a washing machine <laughs> onto the yeah. armored car which you guys were riding in. Can you uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about this? Yeah, sure. I mean, we had
5: as part of the, the general security operations that were ongoing during that period of time um the brigade as a whole would kind of enter into the city would and would do make arrests and would do various kind of pieces of work in the city uh some and and sometimes it would happen all in one go like everyone just descends so this was one of those instances where i think an entire brigade had descended on uh, a city in the west bank called nablus um Now, what had happened during that, because there's the Israeli presence there had been kind of stone-throwing, like kind of the youths come out and they grab the rocks and they start burning tires and they start throwing things, uh, uh, non-lethal, kind of semi-lethal, if you like, equipment at soldiers. So we found ourselves on the side of a hill. Uh, So like, if you like, to your left is just a slope downwards into the city. But to your right is is kind of... um, houses all built into one another and so they were on the roofs of these of these houses running from one to the other and throwing down on us and our cars and we were responding with uh kind of non-lethal ammunition tear gas things like that it's very intense situation actually um and um we were in the thick of this right in the thick of it and, and we had kind of retired into our armored vehicle and we were listening to like the, the things bombard bombard the vehicle and, and you could kind of hear it. it's like rain almost. And then suddenly there's this huge bang like on the roof, and we have we're like, what was that? And um, we break out of the vehicle, you know, we come out, and we're like, What, what, what was it? And, and then the vehicle moves, and as it moves, this this washing machine just kind of falls off the roof. <laughs> You know, <laughs> like where did that? Where did that even come from? You know, like how did that even? How, it's just so like it doesn't belong in this environment at all. And then there's this older guy steps into the middle of this furor that's going on and starts screaming up at the roof. And we thought he, you know, he, he if you like, he's supposed to be screaming at us. We're the Israeli like invaders here right there doing this so why isn't he shouting at us and there's an arabic speaker in the car who's like piecing it out and he's like he's screaming up at the the, the guys who are throwing these things at us because we they just threw his washing machine on the (laughs) floor And, 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 and i look down at the street i'm noticing on the street that there's like books and there's and there's glass like from from you know drinking glasses and things and they've been throwing the contents of people's homes onto the car and at us (laughs) after that like the whole thing kind of ended with like like two minutes later i see right down the very end of the street like six or seven youths they they kind of walk out in single file with their heads firmly fixed at the ground and they just walk down the slope walk into somebody else's house and start the whole thing again with another crew of soldiers <laughs> <laughs> that, you're just like, oh my god this is- this is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right here,
4: you know. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, you know, at the same time, it's a dangerous situation, but at, at the same time, it's it's unintentionally hilarious. I mean, as I'm reading the book, you know, these kids are throwing everything off the roof, and it, uh, obviously from up high, you know, somebody could get yeah. killed. And, yeah. uh, and then, you know, this washing machine, of all things, uh, yeah. from way up on this roof and then the old man as i'm reading this you know i'm trying to figure out why why is the old man yelling at them and then it turns out that was his possessions and uh, yeah you know
5: because you never think about this kind of thing like it doesn't it wouldn't even occur to you to think about it like i had seen plenty of um like the new plenty of instances on the news where the camera crew is set up and they're filming this kind of thing happening but you don't you don't think like well who are these people what are they doing how are they doing it whose tires are they right they're setting tires and <laughs> tires where do they get them like who did they take them from someone's car like where <laughs> do they come the from uh, you, you don't think about it it just doesn't occur to you but but yeah and then you, when you're in it you see it and and, and it makes you realise uh, you, you come to some interesting conclusions about it
4: yeah i mean again that was that was one of the unintentionally hilarious parts of a dangerous situation but at the same time you know as soldiers you see stuff like this all the time and it it never fails to amaze you how crazy the world can be at times but uh there was another episode that where you're uh in an apartment you're hunting for a wanted terrorist you had to watch over a family and volunteers from the United States and the UK were there and share yeah. with our uh, listeners that story.
5: Yes. Yeah, so this was my first proper, if you like, mission. This was my first after getting badged, after getting brought brought into the unit as kind of a full-fledged member. And by the way, you've just done a year's training. And then the first thing they tell you when you do after a year's training is you don't know anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It was also like a bit of a sad surprise, you know, you're like, oh, I'm here everyone. And they're like, yeah, you don't know shit. Just do what I tell you, you know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so it's our first mission and they're like, yeah, we, this is like, this is, we're going to give you something easy to do if you like. Um. So, yeah, I mean, I, I I had been preparing for this for a year and then I think it was somewhere around two in the morning. Like uh, we get dropped, dropped off somewhere in Nablus and we kind of navigate by foot uh towards our target building and the mission had been to set up like an ambush position in one of the apartments in this building um the, you know to try and 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 find if there are any terrorists running out to hit them um and I hadn't considered and I hadn't been trained for either actually the idea that someone if there's someone living in the apartment then someone is going to be have to be the one to look after that family while somebody else is the one on the ambush position you know and obviously as a soldier all you want to do is be on the ambush ambush position anyway so we get in there and it's actually two apartments on one floor um and we we, we move into these apartments and there's a a couple there living in one of them with their two children and the two kids are asleep and they stay asleep and the, the kind of the mum and dad end up sleeping on the on uh, the couch. And now we're in here and we're, we're all set up for our ambush. Um, so, you know, like one person stands guard and everyone else goes to bed, goes to sleep, I should say. You sleep on the floor and you sleep in full kit with your boots on and everything else, obviously. So I get woken up uh, by a, another one in the in the squad. And he says, Mark, 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 you, you, the, the British are here. Literally, the British are here. I'm like, what, what, is, what is like Paul Revere or something? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what does he mean? Like, what does he even mean? The British are here. So I get up and I come outside, and the, and the number of people in this apartment is like twenty now. I'm like, how are there? How? You know, I went to sleep a few hours before there were four people, two children. They were asleep. And I hadn't even seen them. I wake up like the entire living room is filled with people. They must have been the most popular people in the whole city. (laughs) uh, You know, when, when people heard that there were Israeli soldiers there, I get, I assume that they must have gone to this apartment to make sure that they were okay. And then because like our entry had been covert, we couldn't let anyone go. Once they came in, they were in and they were stuck. Um, uh, because yeah if we released them then they would tell everyone else that there were Israeli soldiers in the building and and then that could lead to a, a situation uh, so yeah so among these people are four are four tourists effectively or activists two from the UK and two from the USA and they've walked into this apartment and they're not allowed out and so yeah and so there they are and you know they're complaining and they're I, when push comes to shove, I end up getting into an argument with one of the English ones who's studying at Oxford or Cambridge, and I'd like was doing some kind of internship in in in, in uh, Israel and the West Bank on some kind of program. And we just get into a debate about the Israeli Palestinian conflict while we're in this room, <laughs> living <laughs> the Israeli Palestinian conflict is going on all around us. We're like talking about water supplies, the rebuilding of the towns, suicide bombers and all these things while the sirens and the shooting are going on outside the window. Um, yeah, it was a crazy situation. And then uh, one of the girls says, look, you know, can I just go downstairs? I need some, like, medication for, for my blood pressure. And I say, look, you, we, we we can't let you out because then everyone would know that, that we're here. And she said, what are you talking about? The only reason I'm in here is because the people who were looking after us said, there are Israeli soldiers in that apartment. Can you go inside and make sure everyone's okay? hey like, oh. <laughs> wait wait! what <laughs> this was supposed <laughs> to move over energy how did they how did they even know so anyway so yeah um crazy times crazy
0: yeah
4: the times. american girl in the book was very annoying you know oh, she kept yeah <laughs> kept wanting to call the embassy as yeah, the uh, i don't know what they would do but right.
5: you know a <laughs> real stereotype of like people who don't like americans Draw a stereotype like, of American, like whiny and complaining and, 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 and uh, over entitled. And that was her, that was her only contribution. It was like, I'm calling the embassy now. I'm like, no, you're not. And then she's just like, okay. Five minutes later, it would be again. And it was just, yeah, it was, yeah, the other guy was just like, oh, yeah, we all just need to smoke weed, man. This whole conflict, go away. We just had a joint, man, it would go like yeah thanks okay <laughs> yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. yeah that that's a that was a fine welcome to the unit uh incident there yeah, right. i mean yeah. but yeah. uh what you know what the old timers were saying i mean I, I again heard the same thing i mean when i graduated uh, being a green beret i got to the unit and you know i was uh considered myself a barrel-chested freedom fighter and you know I was ready to take on the whole world and and my team sergeant let the air out of the balloon pretty quickly. And he was like, yeah, Oh, congratulations. You graduated. And now is when you actually start to learn shit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, it's all, it hasn't ended. It's just begun. Yeah. 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 And he was like, just stick next to me and you'll learn stuff.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: (laughs) yeah and
5: every new team coming in is the same everyone yep. is just like oh, I, oh i'm i here now come on let me out but you're like no nah, no nah,
0: nah. <laughs>
4: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep. and uh it's funny because uh you know we all speak different language but uh you know the military is the same in a lot of places yeah you know? and yeah uh, that's why re- reading this book i mean like i said it it, it it struck a chord on so many levels, but uh, one of the things that was really interesting part was uh, you guys were hunting a, a, a warner terrorist who was responsible for the deaths of a lot of Israelis as well as Palestinians, and you guys had trapped him in a house. He had all kinds of ammunition, and, you know, I'm expecting, oh, this guy's going to, you know... Uh, what, what they call them, What a shahid or a martyr, you know, where oh, yeah. they d- die the martyr's death. And it didn't turn out that way. And uh, no. yeah, no, I, I, tell our listeners about that one as well. So we referred to this guy as the fox.
5: He was like well known on the on the hit list, on the top ten terrorists of of the area. He was he was right up there, um, and he was so such a sensitive target that actually um you know the, the military had kind of avoided his family they'd kind of left the areas where he felt comfortable alone in the hope that he would show up uh and we had practiced for the operation to go get him a lot and we had been stood up to do it a lot and then stood down at the last second um i don't know if you i imagine you experienced that quite a lot as well that you're you know you're ready for the mission and and everything is in place and your transport is there. And then they're like, no, 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 it's been cancelled. It's been cancelled. That happened all the time. And then uh one time, you know, we were stood up again. And I remember saying to the deputy commander of the unit, yeah, we're gonna we're about to get stood down, like forget it. And he just looked at me and he's like, nah nah, not this time, man. And um and he was right. So they they we drove into Nablus, and that was like my operating area mainly, uh, while I was while I was in the army and um yeah we we uh dispersed exactly according to plan um and it was an apartment building so it wasn't a house it was a much bigger complex than that and they exited they brought everyone who who, who was in there they brought them all out and they were very clear you know look is there anyone left in there are you sure is this guy here are you sure he's not here we, and then they went in and looked this they did a sweep inside to find him um and for some when i was outside i was covering like a corner of the building my me and my uh me i was part of what they call a chulia in hebrew which is like four of you and uh yeah so we were all covering one one portion of the building and i had this weird um image by the way of the blues brothers movie while i was doing it i do you remember the move the, it's the very end of the movie where they go they want to pay the tax bill and they call in like all of the SWAT teams <laughs> everywhere, and everyone is, you know, they're abseiling this. They got snipers, whatever. And I was just like, yeah, I'm one of those extras in this particular operation. I'm just an extra here, like nothing to do here. The hours were ticking by. It had gone from like two in the morning, three, four, five, six, seven. It was dawn. It was now. It was now past dawn. It was. It was. The heat was was coming. The sun had come up. And you know nothing was happening, and I was like this is this is nothing like this, this was another uh false alarm and we, we need to go back to base and then suddenly uh, a hand just emerges from one of the windows and just closes a window in 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 the least dramatic way that anything has ever happened a guy closed a window right and we were like <gasps> Someone's closed the window. There's somebody in there. There's somebody in there. So we've seen this and we've reported it to the guys who are conducting their sweep in the building and they go in and they're like, are you sure? Because they've done their sweep of the, of the particular apartment where we kind of located the window and they haven't found anything. Uh, and so, the, you know, they're questioning it. We're like, yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent this has happened. So they go out of the apartment and they throw a grenade inside. And they throw this grenade inside. The grenade goes off, obviously causes all the damage and and, and everything that a grenade causes. And then suddenly they can hear voices, uh, and there's two guys screaming inside. No, no, no! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Officer, officer! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! We're coming out. And these, uh, there were two terrorists. Actually, there was there was the one we were looking for, and another one that we didn't want to know who we didn't know he was there. Who was also one of our most wanted. And they came out with their hands up and they had, had created like a fake cabinet situation and behind the cabinet they constructed like a hole in the wall, and that's where they were hiding. Uh, and when they came out, they they came out and they we found in there you know um, weapons and ammunition effectively that they had not used um, and that they hadn't tried to use and they hadn't wanted to do anything with it and in fact, actually if they had if they had just braved it out a bit longer, they might have gotten away with it because the sweeping team didn't know where they were anyway, they emerged and they brought downstairs and just, it, it changed something in the way. And again, in the way that I looked at this whole conflict, because, you know, we had been arresting suicide bombers. We had been engaging terrorists. Uh, but this guy was, these two guys actually were their leaders. You know, they were big guys, uh, and they were armed, but when push came to shove and, and they were facing Israeli soldiers, they just surrendered, you know, and the whole ideology of martyrdom and the whole idea of we love death like you love life was it just collapsed. And, and these, these guys didn't even care about their own ideology. Uh, now, for me, that was a big deal because I had kind of assumed that, you know, it was like my mirror image. You know, I had come from London. I had come to fight uh, in the IDF for the Jewish people. The guy on the other side would, was me, but he was just born in different circumstances and he was doing different things. But when I saw that, actually it changed a little bit. Um, and then he started crying and then he was begging for someone to shoot him. And I was like, why is he begging for someone to shoot him? He could have, he, he had a gun. Like, you know, it doesn't, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, it turned out that that it's kind of like the guys who would be, who would end up being murderers anyway, the guys who would end up being on the wrong side of the law, if there wasn't a warlike situation, are the guys who end up kind of becoming terrorists, um, and sending other people to go blow themselves up, while running a protection racket in the city, Um, you know, and that was who he was, you know, nothing special, nothing ideologically driven, just a guy who became, um, you know, a psychopath who became a hero, by virtue of the fact that he could kill Israelis instead of, instead of um, Palestinians, you know, like a regular criminal. And that really changed the way I looked at things of what, it was just another thing, another wake up call that the Middle East is, is different.
4: And, and, you know, in in the book, you you talk about how you started to withdraw and, you know, um, you you had what, what I, characterized as a classic case of PTSD. I mean, you you weren't uh you know, when you were off duty and back in your apartment and later with the family that you were living with on a kibbutz, I believe. Yeah. Um, you kind of withdrew and, you know, it it wasn't the same for you when when you weren't with the guys in the unit. And that's I thought that was a really powerful moment in the book because it's something a lot of soldiers everywhere are going through today and uh i don't know how comfortable you are speaking about that part of your life but if you care to uh you can share some of that as well
5: yeah and i think it's really it's really important to talk about it actually because of because of the suicides from ex-servicemen you know for, because of the trauma that like um former soldiers go through or even or serving soldiers um, from the things that they've done, I think it is important to talk about it. Um, and yeah, I mean, during my during my actual service, I didn't kind of realize that anything was wrong. I understood that I was very unhappy when I wasn't in the army. Um, you know, because Israel is kind of in that unique situation where you can be on the front line in the morning and you can be by the swimming pool in the in the afternoon at the kibbutz. Everything is very close, but but you can change kind of atmosphere and dimension really really easily uh and i had a really hard time at first that's what it was i had a hard time coping with that sudden change i didn't like it like it was it was it was difficult to adjust and by the time you start to adjust um to kind of being in a more civilian environment it's time to go back to the army anyway you know or if you if they've let you out for the weekend or something so yeah so uh, it reached the point um after about eight months of kind of um 8 months after i was accepted into the unit i guess so 8 months of operations and they, and you do them every night operations um i just kind of withdrew i didn't want i didn't want to do anything anymore i i uh i got some hashish and i took it back to my room on the kibbutz and i smoked it and uh until the end of the weekend and then i put my uniform back on and i went back to the army i didn't want to leave the room i kind of i didn't want to see anyone or speak to anyone or do anything um and that's how that was, and that's how that started. I didn't really notice it at first, actually. Um, and I don't think that you do. I think it kind of sneaks up on you. I really noticed it when I got out of the army. I noticed it more. Um, but you have a great feeling when you're with your teammates. Like, when you're with the people that you're with in the army, they understand you 100%. And they have gone through the same things that you've gone through. And you don't have to say anything to them. Like, it's all unspoken. You can just be together. And kind of be sharing in the same kind of hardship, uh, but the moment that you are out of that environment, you suddenly you feel less taken care of, you feel more vulnerable, and um, nobody else really gets it, nobody understands how you're feeling or what what you want out of life, and you don't know what you want out of life, and everything gets very deep and very philosophical and, and very difficult for you to explain to yourself um, and that started happening you know it started happening while I was still in the army, and it got worse when I got out. Um, yeah, I mean, um, uh, when I finished the army, I went back to London uh, and I was with my family, which is probably the the worst thing I could have done because there really no one understood what I was talking about um, or who I was at that point. They were all talking about what was on TV and they were talking about music and they were talking about their jobs and their lives. And I just had no uh, no connection there, no ability to kind of connect or empathize with anything that they were saying. Well, I really didn't care who the most important band was at that moment. And I really didn't care that the, it was the office that was on TV. And I really just, I just did not care. I couldn't understand why everyone was talking about this stuff. Um, And again, it it led me to just withdraw um, or get really, I got very drunk a lot. Uh, Drunk and stoned a lot, um, which again is kind of withdrawing. It's just withdrawal. It's just to try and not to have to speak to anyone. Yeah, so that happened. uh, And that was happening. And at the same time, I had kind of pressure to get a job and pressure to be employed and to kind of continue with my life. And I really wasn't sure what life after the army would look like, because I'd never really considered life after the army, actually. Um, My original kind of desires and ambitions for myself was that I was going to go in the army and stay there as a career. Um, But I didn't, I left after only two years. Uh, and I was back in London, and I wasn't sure how to proceed, so you, you know, you just dig yourself into a hole, you know, Um, and that's kind of what I describe in the book.
4: Yes, and uh, that was, uh, that was something that I think a lot of soldiers, you know, regardless of what army you're in, a, a lot of guys are going through that today, you know, they, one minute they're in the military, and then the next minute they're out, and you know they're they've kind of lost without that structure and without that you know support system around them where you know and you trust everyone that's around you and you know you know those members of your unit more intimately than a lot of guys know their own families
5: yeah yeah and actually i was hoping when i was writing the book i was really hoping that 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 my experience post army would connect with people kind of from other armies as well like that, that it would be a shared a similar shared experience um you know that everyone could relate to um because it is it's crazy if, when you think about it you know you've, you've gone through quite you know they they call it um post-traumatic stress disorder well i always kind of think like well how would how are you supposed to like deal with what's the in-order way of dealing with all that kind <laughs> yeah. of effect you know like what's the right way of having gone through traumatic stress um and 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 if you can come out the other side of it I think you can come out the other side of it being even grateful for the experience because you know as a learning experience about your own resilience that you can hit kind of the bottom but you can kind of come back up as well you can get past this you can move forward uh, and there is a life after the military um, or there is a life after the after the battle zone if you like that the, you know, because uh-huh. for, for, for months, all I wanted to do was go back. I didn't want to go back to Israel. I wanted to go back to Nablus. That was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be back in that city doing, you know, never-ending operations with the same guys for the rest of my life. Um, and I dreamed and fantasized about doing that non nonstop um, until I realized it's just gone. You know, it was a period of my life. And that's finished. And it's time to kind of move to the next period. It was very tough
4: so eventually you ended back up in israel um can you uh fill us in on that part of your life yeah, I mean,
5: it's, 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 when i left israel after the army i was feeling kind of miserable and i, I wasn't kind of you know it, it's easy to have a very black and white vision of a conflict when you're far away from it and then you're in it and it's very easy to lose kind of your own um understanding of 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 you know, the difference between good and bad, right and wrong, and, and, and which side you're actually supposed to be on in a conflict and why. Um, because you only see the little microcosm of what you're involved in. You don't see the bigger picture. Uh, so when I got out of the army, I kind of thought, you know what, I don't think there's anything left for me here. I, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And like I said, I was in a bad place. So I wanted to go back to kind of be with my family. Um, but having said that, I always wanted to live there. I always wanted to go back. Uh I hadn't turned my back on it completely. I hadn't just left. I, I kind of wanted to go back, but I wanted to go back to the UK to just sort myself out and get my head into a better a better place to return to Israel, um, in a better way. And you know, I think that just what I needed was just time away uh in order to regain my perspective, you know, uh to to gain to to see once again a bigger picture after having been this tiny microcosm, you know, this tiny micro-operator um, or a tool of government policy. Um, yeah, and it took a good few years um, of kind of going on this journey. Um, but, yeah, after a while, I just realised that it's like, what were my expectations in the first place? Like, what did I really think that, like, you know, that, that, that you know, you, can, you can be involved in a counterinsurgency and it not be, like, messy and then not be any civilians involved. That that's not the, the real world, like that. And and so I had to alter, if you like, my own preconceptions in line with what I had gone through, and alter what my expectations had been. And once I did that, I was I was kind of felt comfortable going back to Israel again. I felt like yeah, I can go back there and I can go back there with a clear head and a better understanding of what's going on there. Um, so I went back. And I went back for like uh, just over five years. Uh, I was back there for, and then I met my wife out there um, and again, came back to the UK after a while I got offered a job in the UK um, and we came back here and here we still are. And now we're wondering about going back to Israel again. So,
4: <laughs> you know. yeah. Uh, that part of the book where you talk about returning to Israel, I thought it was excellent passage of the book where you said you, you were returning not to a paradise, a place of milk or honey, or some kind of holy place the Messiah was arriving to. I was going back to the land and the country of my people, dirty, dusty, imperfect, but our own. And I, I thought that was really, really good part of the book because uh, it explains it all and it kind of puts everything into perspective. Now, is your wife is your wife is an Israeli or is she from England as well?
5: No, no, she's Israeli. Um... Yep. Her mother is originally from Iraq and her father from Tunisia. Um, and they kind of reflect that kind of Jewish experience um, of, of the more Middle Eastern experience. And she was born in Israel and um, grew up there. And then, yeah, and, and, then, and then we came here. And we came back to London.
4: How does she like living in England? She loves it. She, ad- she
5: absolutely loves it, actually. Um, she loves that people stand in line. people people just wait in line here you know they just they need to go they need to go somewhere they just wait in the line until it's their turn and then they pay for whatever it is you know like (laughs) um people don't ask um overly personal questions here you know people give you your personal space here you know it's another thing that's not very great
0: yeah
5: (laughs) so yeah she likes it
4: yeah, Israelis don't like standing in lines. I've noticed that.
5: Yeah, yeah they they're like, "No, no, it's my turn, man." Yeah. <laughs> they're like, Me now, right?"
4: Yeah. Yeah, I, I noticed that when I was there and uh but it's such a wonderful place and uh I've I've visited there quite a few times with work and I definitely want to go back and uh cuz I've told my family about it and as someone who loves history the country is it's like a living breathing museum as i put it because oh, yeah. you can walk through jerusalem or parts of the the country and everything was as it was 2000 years ago i mean you know when the romans uh, laid waste to jerusalem a lot of the ruins are just where they left them yeah and it's an amazing place but uh no and in your book was uh, outstanding because as i put it i mean uh, you get the impression from reading it that it's you you're kind of pulled right into it and right. i felt like we were sitting in a pub and you were telling me your story I and love
5: that, that uh, review man i absolutely love that line yeah That's
4: perfect you know because that's how I felt when I was reading it. I, I wasn't being recited to. I wasn't reading some dry commentary about, you know, a, a person's, uh, you know, experiences. I was kind of pulled in and that, that's what made the book so easy to and quick to read. Because once I started reading it, I couldn't put it down. And uh, like, uh, I missed a couple of meals because my wife was like, are we going to eat? And I was like, go ahead. I mean in, in the, this I'm not putting this down until it's done.
5: <laughs> you know, this I to tell you though, by the way, um for a Green Beret to be saying this to me about my experience and about my writing, about that book, um, it for me is like the as good as it gets, right? It doesn't get better than this. Like for you with all of your military experience and all the things that you've done to to kind of look at my experience and give it that kind of validation and to, to be able to um you know recognize within your own uh training that some of those things really makes me feel special actually it makes 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 me very uh really feel like it's job done and 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 I really respect your own service and I'm I'm just incredibly proud of that review actually.
4: Um well it's very you, well deserved my friend well. I mean I I like I said um when they asked me if I would uh review it I was like sure I, I love reading about everyone's experience because like i said we're all different but yet we're all the same yeah i mean you know we we all have our you know our own experiences but you know we can we all speak the same language basically when it comes down to it and uh that's what i love about books like this and yeah the respect is there i mean uh i thought that that was a tremendous book and i and again i mean you you there's the the hours of boredom the the sheer yeah. terror at times and then the ridiculousness of a guy throwing his washing machine off the roof. I mean, <laughs> it's all there, you know, and uh, I really appreciate your time today. And, and again, thank you for your book. Uh, it's definitely in my collection of uh, you know, I've already shared it with a couple of other people. I I told them they need to read this. So uh, oh, amazing.
5: Really appreciate that. Um so. Thanks very much. I'm really happy to do this. Really, love to, and I love to a it, by the way. And uh, yeah, I'm going to keep
4: reading. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so are you writing anything um, now that's com- coming out, or are you going to continue writing? Or is, uh, looking, you know, what, what's your plan? To write a novel.
5: Um, I'm looking to write, to write a novel about, um, we were talking a bit before about... Um, I had this relative who served in the British Secret Service uh, mm-hmm. just after World War I in the 1920s. And I'm looking to write kind of a fictional account based on him uh, and what he did. Um, he was arrested in France. He served time in prison for espionage. And, and I just think he's a great character. Um, so, yeah, so, so watch this space.
4: That's That's awesome. Well, we look forward to reading that in the future. So... Um, keep us in mind for that, and no uh, yeah. Again, Mark, thank you very much for your for your time, for your patience today, and uh, yeah, and for your for sharing your experiences with us.
5: No problem, Steve. Thanks very much for having me.
4: Okay, and uh, for everyone, make sure you add this to your reading list. It's uh, called "Beyond the Green Line" by Mark Goldberg tremendous book about his experiences in the israeli counterinsurgency uh you know and um it's a great human story as well so uh for myself steve balistrieri mark goldberg all of us here at soft rep radio soft rep radio on time on target we'll be back with another podcast real soon in the meantime keep reading those articles folks and make sure you read mark's book again beyond the green Line.
2: Play.